Um, oh, there we go. Yay. Um, sorry about that. Hey, thanks, Ryan, for the signal. Um, well, anyway, uh, like I was saying, we've got the really cool scripture journals. Uh, we, we just have been praying that the Lord would use his own word to work in your life as you spend time with him individually. Uh, we get to gather and we get to hear from the word preached, and God does amazing things through the preaching of the word, but we also wanted to get it into your hands. So it's real for you and give you the opportunity to say, hey, would you study Titus with us? Uh, so within each scripture journal, you've got like these little uh, bookmarks that say SOAP. It's the SOAP acronym, uh, which is just a tool that we use to say, hey, if you maybe have never studied the Bible, if you've never read the Bible for yourself, here's a cool tool that might help you as you spend some time in scripture that you could just take to uh, read through the bookmark and go through guided questions. And uh, alongside the scripture journals, there's the scripture on the left. And then on the right side, there's kind of the, the empty lines where you can take notes, whether it's through the sermon, or whether you take it and you study it before uh, city group, so that way you go to city group and you're kind of like, okay, like I read this beforehand, now we have some thoughts to share all together. We'd love for you to take that. It's our gift to you. We want the Lord to just use his word in your life uh, as you spend time and as we spend time in the book of Titus for the next eight weeks. On the back side of the bookmark is actually how we've laid out uh, this series in the book of Titus. So you know exactly what text we're going to preach every Sunday for the next several weeks. So you can just follow along in your own time as you study God's word. Uh, But before we dive into Titus this morning, I want to give some background for us. Uh, Because the letter of Titus, right, was written to a specific people at a specific place with a specific purpose in a specific context. And so we want to study the background and we want to know what's kind of going on before really diving in because it's going to illuminate uh, what's actually happening in the scripture for us. Uh, Now, Titus, if you open it up, you read right away, it says, Paul, a servant of God, right? So who was the author of Titus? Paul. Paul's story we've been tracking as we've spent time in the book of Acts and kind of walking through his story and how God has radically transformed his life. He was a Pharisee who was persecuting Jews, and he's now a believer in Christ Jesus who was traveling the globe, planting churches, sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith because of how God is using this man. And now uh, it's to the point to where Paul writes this letter to Titus, right? a friend, a brother in the faith, a son in the faith is what he calls him, uh, as Titus is in Crete, it's an island. It's one of the church plants uh, that kind of happened throughout that time. And so uh, we actually don't read of the story of Crete and the Crete church plant through the time uh, in the book of Acts. You actually don't even read of Titus's name in the book of Acts, but we hear and read of Titus in other letters uh, that Paul has written to other churches. The first one is 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. We read how Titus is mentioned. He was someone who went to uh, the Corinthian church. He delivered a letter from Paul to them. He stayed with them. He was encouraged by them. Then he went back to Paul to report what had happened and what was going on in the Corinthian church. We also read of Titus in, uh, um, in Galatians chapter 2. He, we learn that he's a Greek, right? He's a Gentile. He's someone who is not of the Jewish heritage. And ultimately, what we really take out of this is that he's a dear friend to Paul. 
He's trusted by Paul because Paul would send him with letters to these different churches. He traveled with him. Uh, Paul mentored him. And so Paul leaves him in Crete with this church here, with these people to lead them. And so as we open up to the letter of Titus, we're going to see a couple of different things as we unpack first these first four verses. So the first thing we're going to see this morning in the scripture is that Paul has a purpose to his letter. The second thing we're going to see is that we can have hope in God's promises And the third thing we're going to see this morning is that we are to be a renewed people. So if you would, open up your Bibles with me and let's read Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul right away, he reminds us of who he is, right? And I, I love how he introduces himself, too, because he doesn't give his title right away. He doesn't say, hey, by the way, I'm Paul the Apostle, like, look at me. But he calls himself first a servant of God. He commits to himself who he is in his relationship to Jesus and what Jesus has done in his life, right? That he's a servant of God. And then he gives his title, right? An apostle, someone who's been sent by God to go and make disciples, to uh, continue to further the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel to others. He's a servant of God, but then an apostle sent by Jesus. And Paul then gives us his purpose statement for the whole letter. His purpose statement, the second half of uh, verse one, he says, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So he sends this letter to Titus to encourage God's people that he's overseeing and caring for so that they would grow and know the knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge of the truth would then lead to godliness. So the whole point of this letter is to strengthen the faith of God's chosen people that Titus is leading. The people who come to faith, who hear God's message, who God calls to himself, and he saves and redeems and he makes new. And how's he going to encourage their faith? By telling them the truth. By communicating what is true to them. Now, this is important for us to see because later in the letter, we see in verses 10 and 12, in verse 10, it says, many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception. Verse 12, Christians are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Sounds a lot like Iowa, but um, that one always lands. You guys always laugh at Iowa jokes. I love it. Uh, But anyway, uh, we see that these people are being led astray. Uh, these people are being filled with lies. They're, they're being told what's not actually true. People are leading them away from who Jesus actually is and what he said he was going to do, what he actually did. And so uh, Paul is writing this letter to inform them and say they need to know the truth so that they could live a godly life as God so designed. But they're being led astray and they aren't actually receiving the truth. So Paul is charging Titus. He's saying, go, Share the truth, communicate that to them, let them know of who Jesus actually is, who God truly is, so that they would live godly lives. This is a huge theme throughout the rest of the letter that we're going to continue to see. It's repeated even in verse or chapter 2, verse 12. Same exact phrase, just written a little differently. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. Now, how can we expect maybe the people of Crete to act like godly people if they don't actually know what godly people should actually act like or should live like? It, it doesn't really make sense for them to act some way if they don't know something, if they don't know the truth. When I was in seventh grade, 
I played my very first year of tackle football. My very first year, because in sixth grade, I didn't want to play, and all my friends made fun of me, so in seventh grade, I decided to play. Well, it gets to our first game, and I didn't know football that well at the time. I wasn't like a huge fan of football, but I signed up to play. We're at our first game, and I have this vivid memory of like getting up off of the ground, and I got to kind of kick all the dirt off me because I just got totally lit up by some other kid. Um, and I look down, and I see like this yellow handkerchief that's chilling on the floor. I go to grab it, and I see the referee has another one in his pocket, so I kind of like run over to him, and I'm like, hey, I think you dropped this. And he looks at me, he's like, no, what are you doing? And he like tosses it back, and that's why my football career ended so early. <laughs> um, but he like puts it back down, and of course, who was the flag on? It, it was on me for holding. Um, and we're on offense, and I'm the one that's like on the floor, and I got called for holding. Like, how did that happen? I basically hugged the kid down backwards, probably. Uh, but anyway, all of that, I, I had no idea what holding was. I didn't know the rules of football. I was just kind of out there playing because my friends wanted me to play with them, and I had no idea what the rules were. So the coach couldn't really like expect me to play that way or that well even if I didn't know what was going on. Now, it's the same is true for what Paul is entrusting Titus with. He's telling them, hey, tell them the knowledge of the truth. Point them to who God really is and the way that they should live, and then God will work in their lives to lead them to live godly lives. Now, knowledge, though, is something that we can take and receive and do nothing with. We can actively know something and never actually do anything with it. And so when he says, hey, uh, tell them of the knowledge of the truth that would lead to godliness, they have to believe that knowledge in order to actually follow through with it. They have to believe it's real and actually to be inspired and changed by it. God has to do a work in their lives so that they would hear the message of truth and that it would change and transform them to live this godly life. Now, I know for some of us today, it's easy, right, to store up a bunch of knowledge and to learn some things, but to never actually live out of that knowledge. And, and as Christians, we sometimes like to produce uh, a ton of knowledge and fill ourselves with it. And sometimes we can just become these people who just know a lot of cool Bible facts and a list of doctrines that maybe we've learned over the years and some verses uh, that we have memorized. And we can become very arrogant in that place. I'm talking to myself in this, right? We can become very arrogant, like knowing all these super uh, fancy facts about the Bible and never actually doing something about it. But we say, oh, knowledge produces godliness. But God actually has to use that to shape our hearts, to transform us and move in our lives so that he would produce godliness in our lives. So it's not just simply the knowledge that produces the godliness, but it's actually believing what is true, believing who God is and what he says he, who he says he is that leads to transformation in our hearts and in our lives. And sometimes we actually go the complete opposite way, right? We go, okay, I know that knowledge puffs up. I know I can be arrogant if I know too many things about the Bible. And so we say, I'm just going to stay clear away from learning anything from Scripture and just go, okay, I know Jesus saved me. and That's all I need to know and stay that way. Well, no, right? The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. And so there's this sweet middle ground that God uses to work in our lives and in our hearts it's not that we just go to the polar opposites and go, okay, I'm either going to be really arrogant if I learn stuff, or I'm just never going to learn anything about who God is and what he says he is in his word, and so I'm just going to stay on this side. But there's this middle ground where God renews our mind, 
and changes who we are to live in a way that's pleasing to him once we know him, right? Romans 12, verse 2, it says, don't be conformed to, the, to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, and what his perfect will is. This is why we uh, are filled with the knowledge of the truth, because God uses it in our hearts to transform our lives, to produce godliness, as Titus says here in chapter 1. And this is what we're going to see the rest of the letter of Titus. This is what we're going to continue to see, that God would renew our lives to make us a renewed people that would live a godly life. So Paul's whole purpose in this letter is to share the truth of the knowledge, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness so that God would continue to work in our lives. But this really leads us with two questions. What is that truth that we're supposed to know and what does it actually look like to be a godly person? Well, verses 2 and 3 talk about what the truth is. So read with me about the hope in the promise. In the hope of eternal life, that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So last week at our uh, Easter gathering, we celebrated, we rejoiced, right? And Ricky preached a sermon that talked about this certain hope that we could have in who Jesus is. This hope that's not a, a wishful thinking kind of hope, but a certain hope, a matter of fact hope, an expectant hope. And that same hope language is what Paul uses here in his letter to Titus, that it is a certain hope of eternal life that we have. We can expect eternal life because God has promised it to us. This is something that is true and is a fact. Why can we be certain? Because God promised it. And why can we be certain of God's promises? Because the scripture tells us he never lies. He cannot lie. That is outside of who God is. And when I sit here with, with just like thinking about the fact that God cannot lie, it absolutely blows my mind away that he can't lie because he's completely true in who he says and anything that he says is absolutely true. And I'm sitting here wrestling with, okay, before time began, as the scripture says in verse 2, right? Before time began, he gave us this promise. He knew that we would have eternal life. Normally, when we think of eternal life or just eternity in general, we start thinking forward, right? We, we start thinking, oh, eternity is going to be forever forward. But eternity also works backwards. God... God is outside of time. And before time began, we have this absolute certainty of knowing that God had promised eternal life to us. Isn't that, it, my mind can't even like, be wrapped around it because it just doesn't make sense to me because I always think that there are things that have beginnings. And yet God himself has no beginning. And we can be absolutely certain of the promises that he gives because... He is outside. Of, he is who he is. He's so large and he's so vast and he's so big and so mighty and so beautiful that we just can't even comprehend the fact that he's promised this before time began. Now, I don't know about you guys, but one of my biggest pet peeves is when people don't follow through on things they promise. Now, it stems back to just kind of some things. When I was growing up, had a lot of empty 
promises that were given to me. And so now it's one of my biggest pet peeves, whether it's like someone saying, hey, I'll go get you a cup of water, and then they forget to bring the cup of water, or whether it's like something huge, and they say they're always going to be there for me, and then they end up not being there. But one of my biggest pet peeves is empty promises, or when people don't follow through on what they say. It really irritates me. But when I sit here with these verses, and I slow down to think about how God cannot give empty promises, how he always follows through, how he is incapable of lying because he is completely true. I'm filled with complete awe and hope and wonder and just absolute amazement at the God that we serve. Think about how God is so different from us in this way. How easy is it for us to lie? How easy is it for us to lie? It's so incredibly easy. Even if you're really bad at lying and, and like you just laugh and giggle and you really give it away all the time, it's still pretty easy for us to, give a, to lie, even if it's not a blatant lie. Like Mariah, my wife and I, we have this uh, kind of joke that we play when people you know, will ask, oh, like who does maybe more of the cooking? I'll always kind of joke and be like, I always do the cooking. And really, I never do. And if I do cook, it's like eggs and cereal. Um, and if you think cooking cereal is not cooking, that's a debate for a different day, okay? There's a lot of work that goes into that. You've got to make sure it's proper milk. To Anyway, uh, we're going to keep rolling. But uh, even exaggerations like that, when they're fun jokes, like it's still so easy for us to exaggerate and lie that way. It's still a lie because it's not true. Yet the God that we serve is not that way. He cannot lie at all, even in our world today. It is so hard to be able to tell the truth and to find the truth. Think about it. If you're watching the news and you've got CNN over here and you've got Fox News over here and you're watching the same thing, they're talking about the same story. There's going to be different clips that they flip and turn and they're going to cut it in different ways to kind of get their point across. And you're going to look at it and go, which one's true? How do I know what's right? You're scrolling on Facebook, you read an article, and then you scroll for a couple other minutes, you read another article, and you're just like, what? How did, like, it's so hard to figure out what is true in our world and what actually is happening in some different areas and some different places and spaces that we have to do all this background research and, and figure out for 15 minutes to figure out if that article that we read on Facebook is even true. And yet when we read God's word, we don't have to do any sort of background research because he is true and he is real and he is authentic and he cannot lie. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that intervenes into our lives and moves with us. How absolutely mind-blowing is it that he cannot lie and who he says he is is actually who he says he is. As children, it's really easy to believe your parents. Do you guys remember maybe uh, back when you were a kid and your parents would say something and it was quick to go, oh yeah, it's true because my mom or my dad said it. When I was a kid, my mom, uh, when we would drive and it'd be nighttime, it would be like on a road trip, I'd be trying to play my, uh, my Game Boy Color, trying to play my Pokemon, and I'd turn on the light in the car and she would say, turn the light off, it's illegal to drive with the light on. And I went, oh, okay. You know, so I bought like one of the little lamp things for a couple bucks to play my Pokemon in my car. But, or uh, if I was playing outside and I came back inside and I was really warm, I would lay by the air vent to try and cool off. And it, that didn't happen very often because I don't really go outside much. Um, 
But when I would do it, my mom would caution me and she'd say, hey, hold, hold on, don't, make sure you don't put anything down the air vent. You're going to start the house on fire. And I, I'd like freak out. You know, I come to find out like years later, my mom lied to me about both of those things. Uh, thanks, mom, if you're watching, because um, that, no, that, that's not true. But uh, those are things that it was so easy for me to just go like, oh, yeah, my mom said it. And so it's real and it's true. And as God's children, we can look back and actually think that God, will, God does not lie like that. Right? It, he tells us completely the truth and who he is, and we can stand firm in who he says he is and actually believe everything of who he says he is and what he has done. And he reveals all of that to us through his word and at the proper time. You know, in our Bible reading plan that we've been doing as a church, if you're tracking with us, you know that we just finished the book of Ruth. And at the end of the book of Ruth, it gives us this genealogy that leads to David, right? Who's a king for Jerusalem, uh, who led them for many years, uh, and just kind of has a crazy life. But as we've tracked through the Old Testament and read the first couple of books, you know that there's this promise to them. God makes a promise to Israel that they would be a blessing to the other nations. And they have no idea what that looks like. They maybe have some assumptions of what it might be. And being on this side of history, we're able to open God's word to read the true revelation of what God has revealed to us before time, that he's always had planned, that Jesus would come and that he would be the Messiah to save his people. That's what the Bible and the scripture all points to, to God's promises that he's revealed to us before time, that God has revealed to us that we have a Savior, and He is our Savior. And we can be firm and stand firm on that promise of who He is, because He cannot lie, and He is who He says He is, and He's done what He said He's done. So what's the truth that leads to godliness? It's the fact that God is our Savior, that He's come to redeem His people, and we have a hope of eternal life because of what He's done. God is outside of time, And because of that, we can completely trust him when we hear his word. We can absolutely be sure that he is our savior and have complete confidence in that truth. When when we read the scriptures and read that Jesus came down from heaven, that he lived a life perfectly, that he uh, died for our sin and rose again on the third day, we can know with absolute certainty that he did accomplish that truth. When Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him, we can confidently believe that. When Jesus tells us and we reread of the promise that he's going to return and restore and make absolutely everything new, and we will have new life and new creation with him for all of eternity, we can stand firm on that promise of truth, of that eternal hope that we look forward to because of Jesus because he's a God who cannot lie, and he stands on his promises, and we can have confidence in that promise, because he is trustworthy and true. Now, if you've ever struggled with doubt, if you've ever struggled with wondering if God is actually good because something hard is happening in life, if you've ever wrestled with whether God is actually with you at all times, it's, it's okay to doubt. It is completely okay to doubt and to struggle and to cry out to him and to ask him to reveal himself in so many different ways to you so that you would know who he is. And I want to encourage you that he is trustworthy and he is true. He stands on his promises. He cannot lie. He is 
always there with us as he tells us in his scripture. And maybe you've got a bunch of questions about the Bible. You have a bunch of questions about who Jesus is and who he says he is, and you're kind of wondering, man, is he actually the only way to salvation? Is the Bible really, truly true? Can I, and, and all those questions are kind of keeping you from maybe putting your full trust in who Jesus is and actually believing that he died and rose for you, that he paid the price for your sin. If you're struggling with that, I want to encourage you and press in and say trust in who he says he is because he's a God who cannot lie. You can do all the research to try and answer your question. You can do all the background uh, historical knowledge on finding the scriptures and what that does and trying to solve and find all of your questions, but you probably won't ever have all of your questions answered because we can't know everything. Only God can. And even if you do find all of the answers to your questions, don't put your faith in a bunch of facts. Don't, don't put your faith and trust in some research that you did. Put, put your faith in who he is and who he says he is. Put your faith on him and him alone. Paul shows us that our hope and the promise of eternal life is true. Our hope to know that God does not lie is true. We are certain of this, that he is who he says he is and what he's promised to us is true. And now Paul tells us to continue forward in our life with Jesus through our common faith in this next section. So let's read about what it means to be a renewed people. Verse 4. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul calls Titus his son, and he's not his actual birth son, but uh, he's someone who walked with Titus for some time and for some years. Someone who he cared for in his spiritual son, someone who he invested in. Now, Paul and Titus, normally in that time and age, they probably would have never been seen together outside of their common faith. And because of their common faith in Jesus, they are deep friends. They have this rich relationship where Paul can call him his son. They're complete opposites, right? A Pharisee and a Gentile. And yet Paul's able to call him his son because of their common faith. This is only something that God can do. I was just thinking the other day, um, and I was reflecting on uh, my friendship with Eric Knoll, who's one of the guys who's part of our church. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, and I have such a close relationship with this man, and he's just a guy I met four years ago, and just sat down next to in church randomly. And God did something really sweet in our friendship where we began to grow and get to know each other. And if we're honest, I, I don't have an outrageous amount of things in common with Eric. But he's still one of my best friends. And he's 30 years older than me. What unites us? It's Jesus and our common faith. It's our desire to see God work in our lives and in our own hearts to see him move and transform us to be men of God, or to see him use us to encourage others in the life of our church and to pursue people for Jesus and his kingdom. It's our common faith that unites us. And I praise God for that common faith. Or, or Ricky, right, as co-lead pastors. What unites me and Ricky? Because we have some things that we are different on. Ricky likes cookies. I like brownies. Uh, Ricky is funny. I'm absolutely hilarious. 
and it's funny because Ricky's actually the really funny one, and I'm not so much, but hey, it works. Uh, anyway, Ricky eats green, ch green chili. I don't like anything that's really that spicy. Ricky's probably more Mexican than I am at different times. Um, <laughs> Ricky hates buying nice things for himself because he's just a super humble man. I absolutely love buying nice things for myself. <laughs> but what unites us? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who unites us, who's given us this vision and this desire to see Jesus do something really cool in South Lincoln, to move in the lives of people, to continue to pursue people for his kingdom. We've said it time and time again, and I'll say it one more time. What unites us is much greater than what divides us. What unites us is much greater than what divides us because what Christ has done in our lives how he saved us and redeemed us, broken, sinful people who did not deserve it at all, and yet Jesus still stepped down from heaven so that we could have eternal life with him? Man, that unites me with my brother Ricky, my brother Eric, all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, much more than something small that would divide us. And I praise God for our common faith that we have, like Paul and Titus had, that common faith that renews us as people so that we're united with one another. In Titus chapter 3, we're going to read... Uh, a couple of verses that say this. It says, Through the washing and re of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. God doesn't just save us to eternal life, but he saves us for a purpose, and he gives us a new life here today. He gives us a new life to live for him and for his glory. Now, there's this really cool uh, nuance with the language, maybe not nuance, but a truth with the language in the scriptures uh, the word uh, for spirit and Holy Spirit is this word pneuma, pneuma in the Greek. And it's the same word that they would use for breath, that God's breath would be the word pneuma. And there's a section actually in the Old Testament, or it's translated anyway, uh, it's translated in Ezekiel 37 as the same word when it talks about God's breath and it talks about God's spirit. And I want to read this section, Ezekiel 37 it's with God and the prophet Ezekiel. He reveals, to him, uh, he reveals to him this valley of dry bones. These are dead bones. And this is what he says to him here. He says, I will cause breath, pneuma, to enter you and you will live. I will put breath in you so that you may come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit, pneuma, in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God breathes life into us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us so that he would always be with us when we come to faith in who he is. God breathes this life into us and our eyes are no longer fixed on the things of this world, but they're fixed on him. They're fixed on who he is, fixed on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 say, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith. If our faith and if our hope and if our trust is in the things of this world, we would be like the Cretans. We'd be like people in Iowa. We, we would be people who uh, try and get their money dishonestly, who lie, who are full of empty talk, who claim to know God but totally defile Him by the works that they do. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, he does a sweet work in our hearts and he renews us as people to look towards him. To fix our eyes on the perfecter of our faith. 
and we're led to live a godly life as renewed people. For the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through this book. And you're going to hear a lot of things as you read the text for yourself that says, do this, be like this, act this way. And it's going to be extremely easy, extremely easy to take that and go, okay, if I do this, if I act this way, if I say things this way, then God's going to love me. If I do this, act this way, then God's going to owe me a favor. And so when I go to him, he's going to do what I ask him to do because I'm doing what he says. But that's not the point of these imperatives. That's not the point of these commands. The point of these commands and imperatives that God's giving to us in his word is to shape us and to form us into the character of who he is. To be like him, to be conformed into his image. Like Romans 8.29 says that we wouldn't just be people who are statues and robots who do good things, but people who are actually shaped and renewed, who have the spirit of God who's living and dwelling within them, that he would change and transform us that he would do a work in our hearts, that we would be a renewed people because of our common faith in who he is. Our motivation is not earning God's favor, but our motivation is loving God. Our motivation is being absolutely changed and transformed by who he is. I've got this uh, really cool poster that uh, one of my friends made for me, and it's hanging above my desk in, our, in my office. You can go look at it if you want. And it's got Matthew chapter 5, verses Uh, 14 to 16 on it. And they say this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is where our church gets its name. City Lights. A light set on a hill so the rest of the city could give glory to our Father in heaven. I have this hanging above my desk because it's the first thing I see when I walk into my office. And it's the first thing I'm reminded of, of my identity in Christ and what he's done for me in my mission field to continue to be a light to the rest of the city so that they might see a renewed person who's completely different than the rest of culture, all because of Jesus. That's what we're sent on, to be renewed people so that others might come to know him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are able to gather this morning. Lord, I thank you that we're able to have absolute certain faith in who you are. I thank you that you are a God who does not lie, but only communicates truth. Anything that comes out of you is true. It is outside of your character to lie. Lord, I pray that we would uh, just come to know and see just the beauty of the fact that we have a God who came to die for our sin, who forgives us of our sin freely as a free gift so that we could have everlasting life, eternal life, and eternal hope that we can be certain of because you promised it before time and that you've revealed it to us. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts during this season that we spend in the book of Titus. Lord, I pray that you would continue to shape and mold our hearts to see you, to find beauty in who you are, God, that you would continue to renew us, and that we would be a renewed people in the common faith that you've given to us. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.